0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's On Demand Agrotourism Training. For more information, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz.
2: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Ashley Rose Young, the historian of the American Food History Project at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. In today's episode we'll talk to Ashley about the transformation of the modern American table, how she cooks up history, and we'll hear Ashley's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia, When the Smithsonian called Julia and asked whether she might donate her kitchen to the museum, Julia asked, why would the Smithsonian want my kitchen? Not only does that highlight Julia's modesty, but it also highlights that it's hard to fully grasp history in the making. For more on the story of how Julia's Cambridge kitchen ended up in the Smithsonian, listen to episode three of Inside Julia's Kitchen with curator Paula Johnson. Now, the Smithsonian's collection of Julia's Kitchen actually represents a sea change in historians' thinking about the value of food history. It coincides with an attitudinal shift in America, one Julia foresaw in creating the foundation. The shift is that food matters, and it matters to society in very deep ways, whether in terms of politics, history, nourishment, or even identity. Someone who shares this point of view is Dr. Ashley Rose Young, a cultural and social historian. With a PhD in history from Duke University, her academic focus is on the intersection of race, ethnicity, and gender in American food culture and economy. Ashley joined the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History in 2017 as the historian of the American Food History Project. Her role combines research and curatorial practices with public-facing programming. She is host and program developer of Cooking Up History, the museum's monthly cooking demonstration series. Ashley has shared the stage with celebrated chefs including Carla Hall, Martin Yan, Aaron Sanchez, among many others. She's also part of the curatorial team for the recently expanded exhibit, Food, Transforming the American Table. She joins us today to bring us up to speed on the latest in food history at the Smithsonian. Welcome to the podcast, Ashley.
3: Thank you so much for having me and good morning.
2: <laughs> good morning. So before we talk about the Smithsonian food history, I wanted people to understand a little bit about where you're coming from. So tell us, first of all, what steered you away from a more traditional university-based academic career towards one at a museum?
3: That is a great question and one that I've thought a lot about going through my own journey in academia. So. You know, I was at university, I went to Yale University for undergrad, and I started off as a biology major, thinking that I wanted to study the evolution of birds, Uh, very interested in the sciences all throughout my young adult life. But, you know, it's funny, I, I took for fun several courses in history and was just so passionate about those and found them so interesting and revealing about society in the past and also relevant for our present day, that I found myself, you know, taking more and more classes in history. And eventually I thought to myself, what am I doing? You know, why am I taking these courses like organic chemistry and all these intro courses that you have to take in the sciences? And I thought, I I just want to study what I'm passionate about. And I love history, and I've always loved history. You know, my dad is actually a retired historian. He taught in the Pennsylvania public school system for over 40 years. And believe it or not, uh, kind of in a a faded way, my mother was a food entrepreneur. And so I grew up uh, in my family's gourmet grocery food businesses in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, They were called McGinnis Sisters Special Food Stores started initially by my grandfather, and they were open for over 70 years in Pittsburgh. So I grew up from you know, infant life through high school and college, working in those businesses and having exposure to, to foods from around the world, but also to people who were passionate about food. And eventually, those life experiences came together, and I realized, you know, I want to study food history but then how do I do that? And that all came together at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. And this was in 2009. I was a junior at Yale College, and I had an internship at the museum where I was able to do exhibition work. I was giving public tours of the museum. I participated and led some of their kids' culinary camp classes and then also worked in object uh, preservation and conservation, bringing new objects into the museum's collections, and thinking really deeply about how an everyday object like you know a hand mixer or a copper bowl or just a, a plastic cup can actually tell us so much about our lives and what food means to us and how those objects are connected to the history of technology or the history of the environment. I mean food, as we know is this lens, this everyday lens into such an expansive universe of questions about who we are, uh, you know, what we're trying to achieve on this planet. And so it was at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, I came to realize that you could have a career in you know, academia that was public facing, that the kind of research that you do could create a product that was meant for everyday people, your family, your neighbors, uh, other Americans living across the country, people living outside of the United States. And that really excited me. I loved just having conversations and and falling into conversations with people at the museum in New Orleans and hearing how passionate they were about their own food cultures and the memories they had of family and grandmothers and grandfathers, and recipes from, you know, just passed down generation to generation. And so it was really even before I got to graduate school that I came to realize that I wanted a career in museums. And that's something tough to kind of deal with when you are applying to a PhD program, because our PhD programs are generally designed to produce university professors. You go in, you learn top-notch research skills, you hone your writing skills, and you're writing for a very a specific academic audience. And you have to really find your niche in the academy and, and write to, you know, you write an article that maybe 50 people will read. If you're lucky and you're really making a splash in the academy, you can reach hundreds, if not thousands of people. But there are many of us whose work will not uh, reach beyond, you know, a certain number of people, a fairly small number. And, that really wasn't the world I wanted to be in. You know, I found academic research so interesting, you know, the nitty gritty of the archive and interpreting a single document. It's just so fascinating. But I wanted to share those moments with the public. You know, I wanted to bring the public in and draw them in and share those experiences of wonder and awe with them. And so throughout graduate school, I had to be very honest with myself that I wanted a career in museums, but I wasn't able to really express that publicly at first because it was looked down upon in the academy. You know, we were striving to be professors at Research One universities, meaning universities where you're publishing academic books and writing articles that are respected and peer-reviewed and not necessarily curating exhibitions and creating public programming that draws the community and those were valuable, you know, things to do, but they weren't seen as the best way to advance your career in the academy, but I did it anyway because that's that's what I wanted to do and I can't stop myself from doing something I'm passionate about. So I did curate exhibits and I stayed in touch with the Southern Food and Beverage Museum and I interned in our rare book library at Duke University where I got my PhD and I designed exhibits on you know the Renaissance understandings of the four humors and how our bodies are balanced. I did an exhibit on women in the advertising industry, if you think about mad men, you know the early pioneers, women pioneers in that industry. and I just I continued to grow in love with public-facing scholarship. And so when the opportunity came up to intern here at the National Museum of American History and then eventually apply for a job to join the team as the historian for the American Food History Project, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine a more perfect job for me. It is exactly what I want to be doing. And, and now both my colleagues at Yale and at Duke are really proud of what I'm doing. And most of all, they're happy that I found such a fulfilling job where, you know, 10 years ago, they weren't sure that there would be a place for me, um, in my passions, but, you know, through the kindness of others and through hard work and carving out a space for myself, I've been able to find a little niche for myself here, uh, to share my passion with the American public. So I'm grateful for that.
2: Wow, that's a great coming together story. And I hadn't realized that it was by design like even before you started your PhD program. So that's great. Let's translate that now into the on the ground food history at the museum. So as some people who visited know, but if you haven't been yet, Julia Child's Kitchen is installed in the museum and is kind of its own exhibit which was the first way it started out. But now it actually serves as the gateway to a much larger exhibit about food in modern America. So can you tell us a little bit about just in general what that exhibit is and what you've learned? I know you're relatively new to the museum, but why is there a bigger exhibit on food anchored by Julia's Kitchen in the American History Museum?
3: a great question. And so, uh, as you'll know from Episode 3 in this podcast series, when curator Paula Johnson spoke, the museum collected Julia Child's kitchen in 2001, and they unpacked the kitchen after they brought it to the museum in front of the American public. And it caught such attention. I mean, people loved seeing all of these almost 1,500 objects you know, being unpacked, and they had memories of seeing them on TV during Julia's later TV programming. So there was definitely energy around this very iconic individual in American culinary history. But then you fast forward several years, and as my team really dove into Julia's history, and we're also keeping their eyes and ears open to discussions broadly in the United States, we all, you know, experienced this shift. You know, we are passionate about food, but public consciousness and the importance of food in our lives seems to have grown exponentially, especially after 2000. You know, with the introduction eventually of smartphones and the advent of, you know, Instagram and the advent of allrecipes.com and just easier access to food and and the emergence of really interesting and innovative Uh, restaurant practices, you know, even after the 2008 financial crisis, for example, brick-and-mortar restaurants were really struggling. And out of that really tremendously difficult time, you had uh, street food trucks, gourmet street food trucks popping up. Now, street food trucks and carts had been around forever, but then you start seeing people like Roy Choi opening up the Kogi, you know, taco truck that's fusing together these different cultures really in interesting ways. And that kind of was part of this moment, this reawakening, this reinvigoration of Americans' interest in and passion for food culture. So it seemed like time was ripe in 2012 to open up an exhibition about food in the United States. And really, as you mentioned, Julia Child's Kitchen is the kind of keystone object, you know, in our exhibition. But what we are studying is changes both technological and cultural in the United States from 1950 to 2000. So that's what the original exhibition was looking at when it opened in 2012. And Julia Child's Kitchen really covers that expanse of time. When you look into the kitchen, which you can do today through our viewports, you see objects from you know, her time in France when she was over there with her husband Paul Child when they initially went to the Paris flea markets and were getting getting mortar and pestles and we're getting these beautiful just what we now think of as classic kind of kitchen utensils but Julia lived in that kitchen you know through 2000 through 2000 and so you see over these decades the kind of changes in technology and there's so many different kitchen gadgets in that kitchen and so that reflects this larger story we wanted to tell in food transforming the american table and what's great is that our collections here at the museum expand all kinds of you know disciplinary Areas within history. And our collections have both cultural touchstones, you know, objects from the home, objects from our communities, but also technological objects. So you think about carrot sticks, for example, you know, you would have to cut those by hand, but we actually have on display here this amazing machine that was invented to more efficiently cut those carrot sticks and put them on the market. So we kind of like showing this juxtaposition in the food exhibition between the kind of technological changes you're seeing, the advent of microwave technology, for example, on one side of the uh, exhibition. And then on the other side, in our cultural side, we have on display, for example, um, microwavable Chinese meals, microwavable Mexican dinners, showing the impact of immigration after 1965, after the Heart Seller Act was passed when you had an influx of migrants coming into the United States from parts that were previously restricted under uh, our immigration acts. So we wanted to show on that cultural side, for example, the influence coming in from uh, East Asia, from Latin America. We also have family stories from the Middle East and whatnot. And so we kind of have this interesting back and forth going on between the two sides of the food exhibition. And we thought those stories would matter to Americans because, you know, people living in the United States are thinking constantly about food. Um, And for those who have, you know, easy access to food and who are lucky enough to have, um, you know, a sustainable food source, oftentimes their minds are turning towards those cultural sides of food, uh, turning towards food as art, turning towards food as community. And even those who are struggling to have access to food, food plays such a crucial part in our lives, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of race and gender and identity. And then it really just shows you how food is that lens into so many aspects of our lives, because we're all eating every day if, if we have access to fresh foods and if we have access to foods, like I was saying, not everyone does, but we are eating and food is a part of who we are. It's a part of how we understand ourselves fundamentally as a person, as a a member in a community, but then also how we interact with larger government structures, for example. You know, who's regulating our food? Who is uh, creating the prices of food if we're thinking about our market and capitalism? Um, How does one access food if we think about food stamps and other programs that are assisting communities in need? There are ways to look at so many different kinds of structures and also structural inequalities through the lens of food, and so that's why we felt in 2012 that it was so important and of the moment to have the exhibition. Um, but as you mentioned, things changed a little bit uh, recently when we did a refresh of the food exhibit.
2: Yeah, and so tell us about that refresh. So you you because originally it was what 1950 to 2000, and now you've kind of brought us farther into the or closer to the present in the refresh. Is that right?
3: Yes. So, you know, the food exhibition it opened in 2012, and it was meant to be a two-year exhibition. So it wasn't going to remain open. Uh, some of our exhibitions at the museum are meant to be open for 20 plus years, and so food was always meant to be kind of a short-term um, experiment, if you will, and to see how people reacted to this topic. And what we learned is that it quickly became one of the most uh, visited exhibitions at our museum, and so we kept it open because. As we saw when we looked out into society, people have a passion for food. And so, you know, fast forward uh, several years. And what we came to realize is there's still so much story. There's still much of a story to share. You know, we stopped that original exhibition in 2000, but this had almost been, you know, another 20 years. Food technologies have changed. Food policy had changed. um, Awareness around social justice issues are becoming more and more talked about. There were so many topics still yet to be uh, explored. And also, once we opened the exhibition in 2012, throughout the years, we were able to get visitor feedback on, you know, what they liked about the exhibition, what else they wanted to see. And so when the opportunity arose to refresh the food exhibition, we really wanted to take to heart those suggestions that visitors made about topics that they wanted to learn about. So in total, you know, every single case in the 2012 food exhibition was adjusted, was changed slightly for the refresh and reopening in 2019. But there were four cases within the exhibition that are entirely new, and they speak to many of those themes that our visitors were interested in. So, for example, we have a new case uh, called On a Diet. And this is really exploring the kind of conflicting and competing diet advice. Nutritional advice, um, conceptions of healthy eating—you know how does it, how those have changed over time since 1950, based on new scientific research, but also based on just kind of um, you know fads that people start, not necessarily grounded in science, but you know just trends and whatnot that people try to use, like the grapefruit diet. Um, so we have this display that looks at these changes over time. And it's interesting, for example, there's a Time Magazine article on display from the 1980s with a frowning face made out of a breakfast plate. So you have two eggs, two fried eggs and a frowning cantaloupe. Uh, And it says cholesterol and now the bad news. You know, there was this huge fear of fat. There was this huge fear that, you know, eating fatty foods or eating high cholesterol foods like eggs would lead to a higher risk of heart disease. But then as science continued to come in and new research studies were made over several decades, you come to the 2000s and you see Time Magazine create, recreate that original cover, two fried eggs as the eyes, but instead of a frowny face, we have a smiling face made out of the cantaloupe slice, and it says cholesterol and now the good news. And what that was showing is that research was kind of uh, saying, well, the impact of cholesterol Uh, or foods with high cholesterol like eggs isn't as significant as we thought on the cholesterol in our bloodstream. It does have an impact, but not as much as we thought. So you don't have to be as afraid of eating eggs as you did in, in 1980, right? And so we tried to kind of show this back and forth, this almost pendulum motion as people were kind of trying to grapple with advice on what to eat and what not to eat. You know, can I have a glass of red wine before bed or can't I have a glass of red wine or is chocolate actually good or bad? And so, you know, through our research and we didn't want to provide any kind of um, advice as historians on what people should eat, but we did comment in the case and in our text for that part of the exhibition that, you know, general advice nowadays is that eating mostly vegetables and fruits is good with everything else in moderation, whether that be meats or, you know, alcohol, butter or whatnot. And that, you know, today, it's so important to have a holistic approach to your health. It's not just about diet, but it's also about your mental well-being and your physical well-being as well. And we wanted to acknowledge that kind of shift from 1950 to the present moment. I mean, you even see that in You know, Weight Watchers, which has rebranded itself as WW, uh, because they don't want to be associated specifically with just weight. And if you look at their um, programming, for example, they are concerned about mental health, they are concerned about physical well being, and that's a distinct shift from the original iterations of that. that program, you know, starting in the mid-20th century. So those are some things we want to comment on. That's on a diet. That's one of the four cases that I mentioned. Another case that's very important to me um, that always we always wanted to share this story, it's called the Migrants Table. And this really looks at, like I mentioned before, what happened in the United States demographically after 1965 with the Immigration Act of 1965, So prior to that act, immigration law was very discriminatory in the United States, uh, preventing individuals coming from uh, East Asia, Southeast Asia, Latin America, the Middle East, Africa, really limiting their ability to arrive to the United States and migrate here. So after 1965, things opened up more. And more than ever, post-1965, we had more migrants come to the United States than ever before in our nation's history and from incredibly diverse places. And you see that obviously reflected in our food culture. And in this case, which we called the migrants table, we really wanted to show how food was such an anchor for migrant communities once arriving in the United States. So we have on display these beautiful dishes, these very meaningful dishes, um, that family members had donated to the museum. One family, for example, from Pakistan uh, donated this very beautiful silver fish platter. And this family, as a means to kind of connect with their new neighbors in their community, would invite their neighbors over to try Pakistani food, and they would serve these beautiful meals on this fish platter. And so now that's part of the National Collection, and it's on display, you know, tying the importance of food in building community. We also have on display, very near next to that, um, a kind of battered uh, pot, a cooking pot. It's not, you know, luxurious like the silver fish platter. It's just a very common everyday item. The bottom's burnt. It kind of uh, doesn't sit flat on the table. It's kind of bent a little bit. And this was brought by a family who was fleeing the um, Iraqi Kurdish Civil War. And they brought this pot with them. Uh, through several countries as they were migrating to the United States and kept it with them once they settled here in the U.S. And it tells a very different story, one of, you know, refugee life and one of fleeing uh, a very difficult situation and one of displacement. And we wanted to show how this pot, in contrast to the silver fish platter, uh, shows a different story, but one in which food also played an important role. It was the ability of that family to keep creating traditional foods from their homelands once they arrived in the United States that helped build community among the refugee community and help them feel and rebuild those ties after the displacement of leaving their home. So those are some stories within uh, the migrants table. We also focused on stories of entrepreneurship uh, particularly of three individuals who just have a love of sharing their food culture with uh, visitors and with other Americans. For example, we look at Paul Ma, who was a restaurateur in New York State. He had this wonderful class in the 1980s called the Dine and Learn, where he had many clientele from New York City and the surrounding area come to his restaurant to learn about regional Chinese cuisine. You know, and it was really only in the 80s that you're having Sichuan and knowledge of Sichuan cooking come to the fore. You're starting to have people realize in the United States who may not have realized prior to that there's such a diverse distinct regional food culture throughout China. And here's Paul Ma in you know early 1980s talking about, you know, 10 plus different regional food cultures in China and really being a part and an important advocate of increasing knowledge and breaking down this idea that China has a monolithic cuisine, which we know is just completely not true. So we were really fascinated by his story, as well as, for example, Seleshi Alifam. He's a restaurant, restaurateur here in D.C. He owns Doss Ethiopian Restaurant, and he really sees himself as a cultural ambassador. He is in Georgetown. There's a lot of uh, people who come from across the world to D.C. They often go and eat at his restaurant uh, for different business meals and whatnot, and it may be the first time they're introduced to Ethiopian food culture. And he loves going around. He's always in his restaurant talking to people, getting their stories, and he really wants to... Introduce people to Ethiopian cuisine and, and sometimes he invites people back to the restaurant to do a very specific uh, Ethiopian coffee ceremony the next day. Well, he brings strangers together outside and does a traditional hour or two hour long coffee ceremony with several pourings of the coffee. And he really encourages people to converse with one another, to learn about one another. And it was a very powerful ritual that he saw uh, Growing up in Ethiopia, and that he wanted to bring here to the United States. So, these are some of the stories um, that are told in the food exhibition. I'll briefly mention that we do have two other cases, one's called Brewing a Revolution. So, our amazing curator of the Brewing History Initiative, Teresa McCullough, uh, was brought onto the museum in 2017. And has been traveling the country collecting stories of craft brewing in the United States since around 1960 and her initial field work is on display uh, in the exhibit case Brewing a Revolution and then my colleague curator Steve Velasquez worked on a really wonderful exhibit case called Old Vines New Blood which looks at Latino winemakers in Napa Valley for example And how, at times, these families, some of the earlier members were, for example, working as itinerant labor. They were braceros. But over time, they were able to accumulate enough money to purchase their own land in Napa and have built really wonderful, renowned businesses Uh, And have fantastic wines. And we wanted to kind of show that story um, in our wine section of the exhibit as well. So those are just a few things about what's new and refreshed in the exhibition. But some other highlights include, um, we were able to collect Melissa Clark from the New York Times, her instant pot that she actually used, for example, to test all the recipes for her cookbooks that she came out with, for example, dinner in an instant. And we have her instant pot next to a crock pot and a part of our exhibition that looks at new technologies in the home and shortcuts for home cooks. And so, you know, the crock pot was such a big deal where you could put something on, leave the house, go do some shopping or go run an errand and come back and you have a complete meal. Well, what does the crock pot look like in 2015? Well... (laughs) For many people, it looks like an instant pot, and so we always love finding objects that have a, that aren't just a representation of a trend. We love that it's Melissa Clark's instant pot because it is tied to her kind of digital presence online and how video media played such a big role in, in creating a lot of interest in the instant pot with her video series, but then also her cookbook itself. So. Just a few little things, but we're always happy to share stories if you're able to come to the museum. Um, we, every single object has a story to tell.
2: Great. Well, thanks for that uh, comprehensive tour of all the updates. And uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back to talk to Ashley Rose Young more about how she cooks up history. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Escape Makers On Demand Agritourism Training. Did you know that every $1 invested in tourism marketing returns on average $3 to $8 back? Not a bad ROI. Learn how to grow your agritourism business via 12 workshops entirely women-led. These training workshops are on demand and can be downloaded at any time. The local travel landscape is rapidly changing to meet the demands of the leisure, event, and corporate travel sectors. Whether you're a farmer or producer, a winemaker, a restaurateur, or a destination marketing organization, there's more opportunity than ever to capture these markets. The on-demand agritourism training will provide you with insights and skills to keep your target demographic coming back for more. 14 speakers providing six-plus hours of education that you can watch at your convenience, anytime, on any device. Maximize your time, budget, and resources and focus on creative solutions to help your business thrive. Presented by EscapeMaker and Fulton Stall Market, the full conference access pass is now available to purchase. Use the code HERITAGE2020 for $50 off a full pass at checkout. For more information and to purchase your pass, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz.
2: Welcome back. We're talking to Ashley Rose Young, the historian of the American Food History Project at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. So, Ashley, connect the dots for us. How do live cooking demonstrations teach us about American history?
3: (laughs) I love that question. Okay, so we did talk earlier about my work with the curatorial process here at the museum, so collecting objects, telling stories through, through the objects themselves, and exhibition design. But another part of my life here at the museum is uh, being the host and historian for our monthly live cooking demonstration series called Cooking Up History. And I have to tell you, this is one of the, my favorite parts of my job. I used to, well, back in the day in middle school and in high school, I was such a musical theater fan. And I loved being in the high school musical. I was, as I always say, never the star by any means, but I was definitely an over-enthusiastic choir member. And so our Cooking Up History program has a performative element to it that I just adore, but it also has an educational element to it. And again, it, gets, it scratches that itch that I have to engage with the public. And so every year we choose an annual theme to kind of organize the 12 demonstrations that we're going to do that year and also the additional demonstrations that we do through Smithsonian Food History Weekend, which typically falls in the fall. This year it will be October 17 through 19. And so, you know, we – this year, for example, the Smithsonian Institution is celebrating the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, so for the women's right to vote. And the institution has named this year, 2020, as the year of the woman. So all of our programming this year for Cooking Up History is going to dive into women's history, yet also feature women chefs. We wanted to showcase the talent of professional chefs, home cooks, cookbook authors who identify as women. And so this year, we kicked off the year with... Uh, Tony Tipton-Martin, who has recently released a fabulous cookbook that is getting a lot of positive attention, Jubilee Recipes from Two Centuries of African-American Cooking. And this was in February during African-American History Month. And she came in and prepared several dishes for our audiences, including bene wafers. So bene wafers are really interesting. They're kind of, you can describe them as a cracker or a biscuit that has sesame seeds, white sesame seeds in it. And this was something, it's a dish that really carries with it influences from West Africa and the Caribbean as well, and how those culinary traditions uh, during the transatlantic slave trade and throughout slavery were brought to the U.S. with the forcibly brought individuals here, and how those food cultures persisted in the United States Uh, and grew here despite the really horrific conditions of slavery. And so Toni Tipton Martin wanted to prepare these recipes to share the history of the transatlantic slave trade, to celebrate the perseverance and ingenuity of enslaved persons and their descendants, and also to share some of her own story as an African-American woman living and working in the United States, how she uses recipes, for example, for bene wafers, uh, for her parties, uh, for community events, and how this tradition, this recipe that's centuries old, still plays such an important part in her life. And what's interesting about Toni Tipton Martin's story is is that she grew up in California, and she grew up in a middle, middle upper-middle-class family, And what she noted about her experiences, you know, reading about African-American food ways in this culture and the critical importance of African-American culinary ingenuity in the United States was that stories tended to focus on the South and tended to focus on soul food. But what she noted, although those are incredibly important culinary cultures, she noted her experiences growing up were slightly different in California and had a lot of influences from Uh, Mexico, for example, but also coming from East Asia and just, you know, slightly different approach to culinary cultures. And so she wanted to write this cookbook, Jubilee, to kind of share her experiences that were distinct from soul food and that she's not the only individual who had uh, these experiences with food cultures, you know, being slightly different than than those associated with the American South. So this is just one example of how we can tie in through a chef's personal story. We can touch base on cult, you know very important historical moments like the impacts of the, of the slave trade on the United States. We can also look at ethnobotany and you know, cultural continuity, looking at the use of sesame seeds, for example, in bene wafers brought from Africa to the United States. And then we can tie that into the chef's personal story and their mission to kind of change narratives about the past and change narratives about our contemporary food scene. So I really feel like Tony's Cooking Up History program was a really wonderful example of the dynamism of our cooking programs here um, because they are relevant, you know, the, the history from 200, 300, 400 years ago is still relevant to our experiences today. And I think that's what really rings true with people. Um, And then to top the demonstration off, we uh, actually did a taste testing of the Bene wafers so people can have that sensory experience. And, you know, going back to the food exhibition, something that our visitors often said is, you know, I love reading about food. I love seeing these objects, but I want to smell or taste or have some other kind of sensory experience And that was one of the reasons our museum really pushed to have a cooking demonstration kitchen in the heart of the museum, because we knew people wanted a multisensory experience. And so the kitchen provides that. And now that we're able to have tastings as well, it really just hits home and ties all of that new information learned uh, to a taste moment and to, to smell. And we know that some of our strongest memories can be triggered by smell and taste. So I like that multi-sensory element that we can bring to the cooking demos as well.
2: I see, yeah. I was gonna ask you what you thought audiences take away from a live demo versus the traditional, but I think you just answered that by that it both brings history to life and that it provides this multi-sensory experience that people have been seeking.
3: Yes, and I would also mention something that makes our cooking demonstrations at the museum um, kind of like a Smithsonian thing is that when we're not having a guest chef come in who has just recently published a cookbook, for example, we try to choose topics that are also relevant to the goings-on of the museum. So this March, uh, Women's History Month, we opened up a new exhibition just last week uh, about the icons of women's suffrage, again, tying into the 19th Amendment and the anniversary we're celebrating this year. And to coincide with that particular exhibition opening and the objects that are in the national collection here at the museum, I have been working with our curators to curate and design a cooking up history about historic women's suffrage cookbooks, one of which is actually in our collections here at the museum. And so you might be asking, okay, women's, women's suffrage, why would those activists who are trying to, um, in many ways, create opportunities for women outside of the kitchen, why were they publishing cookbooks? You know, if anything, you, you think they would be trying to get women out of the kitchen. But in fact, you know, there was a lot of concern at that time, especially among men, that if women were given the right to vote, that they would abandon their families and abandon their work within the domestic sphere. And so you have these political cartoons, for example, published in the local newspapers depicting crying children, you know, a dad holding crying children in his arms, trying to stir the cooking pot, and the now woman who has the right to vote just walking out of the home. And so these cookbooks are fascinating because it was an attempt of women involved in the women's suffrage movement to say, you know, they were subversive. They were saying, don't worry, we are still going to cook, we are still going to clean. You know, here is a cookbook to prove that we are committed to domestic life, yet within its pages were also essays and stories about women's suffrage, about why women deserve the right to vote. And in a way, those cookbooks were, were kind of like a Trojan horse, because as we know, once women got the right to vote and were empowered even more and had more agency, they were able to better define their lives on their own terms. And many women chose to go into the workforce. You know, women had always been working, but to combat those kind of stereotypical ideas that women should only be working at home you know, there was more opportunity. Uh, especially after the 19th Amendment was ratified. So it's a really fascinating story. And so that's where kind of those Smithsonian moments come in, because we're going to talk about these historic cookbooks. We're going to make an aspic, a tomato aspic, from a 1915 women's suffrage cookbook. And then we're going to have an objects out of storage coincide with that cooking demonstration where you can actually see these first edition historic cookbooks alongside other women's suffrage uh, memorabilia and testimonies and so you have that connection with the objects in the national collection but then you're also seeing historic foods being made on stage which is really exciting and then you could go see the exhibition so it's again it's like this trifecta of of uh, interaction with objects learning about history and tasting history all in one
2: well and speaking of smithsonian moments I. Uh... To our listeners, which American food or drink would you nominate for a spot in the Smithsonian? Send us your ideas via email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know. After the break, Ashley is going to reveal her Julia moment. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone— Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have, but you can always pick it up and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Ashley, what's your Julia Moment?
3: Uh, So many Julia moments. So you know, when I was growing up, and my mom and I used to watch a lot of food TV together. And so I definitely have, and there's somewhat vague memories, because I was only six six or seven years old, of watching Julia Child on Cooking with Master Chefs on PBS with my mom. And I do have a vivid memory of the Lydia Bastianich episode, which I also greatly admire Lydia as well. And she's had a strong presence in my hometown of Pittsburgh. But I do want to mention when I think about Julia Child, you know, she was very much revered in our family and my mother had the opportunity to meet her. My mom, like I said, was a food professional in the gourmet food business. And so, Julia was an icon in our family. And for me, she is a present, she is a strong woman, she is she is who she is. I love that she owned her personality. You know I was talking to Paula Johnson, our curator here the other day, and she mentioned this quote where Julia identified herself as a a jolly cook, and I just love that she owned that. She is enthusiastic, she had so much passion, and I see a kindred spirit with her in many ways. so I'm up on a stage at least once a month i'm I'm in front of the public, and like Julia, I see myself as an educator. And I see myself as someone who wants to create those that joy around learning um, and also kind of helping people um, see something new, see the world through new eyes. And so when I think of Julia, I see someone who was incredibly curious and respectful of, of other people and people different of herself, but uh, different from herself, but also she was someone who saw the commonality that we all share. And so I often think of Julia when I'm on the cooking up history stage. And I think about just the kind of spark and energy that she had. And I, I try to foster that within myself again, kind of touching base with that musical theater nerd of my past, but also the professional historian in me and also the human, you know, like I said, we're all connected to food. And so Julia, for me, She is just an iconic culinary educator, and I can only hope to have, you know, just a a sparkle of what she embodied in in her entire person. I hope I can capture just a little bit of that passion and energy and share that with the American public.
2: That's really great, Ashley. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and bringing us up to speed on the latest at food history programming at the Smithsonian.
3: Thank you, Todd. It's been a pleasure. Come visit us.
2: I'll be back soon. I know it. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can learn more about the Smithsonian's food history programming on AmericanHistory.si.edu forward slash topics forward slash food hyphen history. And once you're there, you can click on Cooking Up History, that link, for details on the upcoming and, I'll mention, completely free cooking demonstrations, which include Bonnie Benwick, Melissa Clark, as Ashley was talking about, as well as the eminent Joan Nathan, who we've also had on the podcast. And stay up to speed with everything else happening at the American History Museum at American History on Facebook and at AM History museum on instagram and twitter if you want to know more about ashley rose young's work you can go to ashleyroseyoung.com and she tweets at you guessed it ashley rose young on twitter for all about the julia child foundation including highlights from the santa barbara culinary experience follow us at julia child on facebook and at julia child foundation on instagram it's at julia child jcf and i'm at t shulkin t-s-c-h-u-l-k-i-n on twitter The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really does help new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member.